Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to my friend, Tom Valentine, who so successfully founded Secret Escapes over 10 years ago. He raised around 200 million pounds, hired hundreds of amazing people and disrupted the travel industry by building a new distribution channel for hotels. What I find most impressive about Tom is how humble, fun and down to earth he is, despite clearly having a huge brain and thinking in a very scientific way about the world. In this episode, Tom and I will talk about cowardness being one of his super strengths, how to succeed slowly rather than fail fast, and how Secret Escapes has always been an optimization execution machine. Tom, you built one of the most successful scale-ups in all of the UK. But before we go into your scaling journey, I would love to hear how growing up was like. Well, I grew up uh, as a young child up till about seven between London and San Francisco. My parents, uh, when they got together, were both working in the advertising business in London. And then uh, in the early 80s, kind of a lot of the London advertising crowd moved to San Francisco to start the West Coast advertising scene. And so uh, my folks moved across there. And so I have kind of lots of memories of growing up in San Francisco. And then my parents parted ways. And so then I was between uh, London with my mother and San Francisco with my father, which was, you know, it, it wasn't sad, really. It was just, it was what it was. But I, I remember it well and lots of time kind of unaccompanied on planes with that kind of a little thing around your neck <laughs> saying, if this child is lost, send it to San Francisco. At about seven, I, I went off to boarding school, which I loved. So I was, you know, the child of a single mum. And by that point, my mother, who would have hated to be described as an entrepreneur, but had launched her own business, she was doing uh, market research. And that's, uh, you know, was then and still is now quite a job for the evenings. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think she was feeling very guilty that she wasn't seeing very much of me. And so boarding school seemed like a great solution in that, like, I'd be away for a spell and then she could plan her job uh, to be around for the holidays. Uh, so I went to kind of various Hogwarts-looking schools around the home counties, uh, kind of very privileged schooling from seven up until the age of 18. Wow. And I mean, you only lived partially in San Francisco until the age of seven, but do you still feel like you're influenced by California and your mindset? When my wife and I emerge for our state-sanctioned exercise on kind of drizzly, snowy days, like almost invariably, I kind of reference a conversation 
I had when in a different life stage, I was kind of in my mid 20s. I was at eBay at the time and I'd been sent out to the mothership in San Jose uh, for like the best part of a year to cover a maternity leave out there. I had a kind of really incredible boss, a guy called Brad Porteous. And he kind of sat me down and said, look, you know, your your secondment's coming to an end, but like, why on earth would you move back to London? Like Mm -hmm. the industry's here and the weather's great. And, you know, I did move back to London for all sorts of reasons. And I think the industry in Europe is now pretty competitive, uh, but the weather, uh, at least in London, is still really, really bad. So I kind of do occasionally find myself looking back at that fork in the road where I could have been in Californian weather. Amazing. I went to high school when I was 16, 17, uh, outside of California. And for the rest of my life, uh, until recently, I always felt like one day I would live in California. And then I went back to study uh, partially in the south of California, uh, mainly for lifestyle reasons, um, and had a great time. But so I, I, this this really fascinating. It resonates uh, with me. And then so your mom was an entrepreneur. So that must have influenced you, I guess, in a good way on balance. Yeah, I, I think as well, because my mom and I were like such a tight little gang that I just simply even when I got to university, I didn't really understand that everybody's work life wasn't like my mother's. So she launched, um, you you might have, well, you've probably been to quite a few and many of your listeners have, But she launched uh, the first facility for viewing focus groups, uh, those things with the two-way mirrors in the UK. So she used to do the research and then she started uh, kind of of verticalizing, I'd say. So she did uh, did the research, but also owned the facility. And at the end of her career, she was simply running the facility and then sold it to the big American player. And so, you know, our dinnertime conversations were an awful lot about whatever the day's crisis was. And, you know, she she had a, a very weird relationship with the central London landlord and kind of, uh, you know, she I wouldn't say she'd describe herself as a natural technologist and there's all sorts of recording equipment going on. And, and so, you know, I never really internalised, and I guess probably still haven't, this concept of being an employee working was running a business uh, as best I understood it. And, you know, over the the years afterwards, I think I managed to kind of rationalize the difference. But, you know, looking back and, you know, my career was over large swathes of it, pretty unplanned, but it's very easy to post-rationalize it. And I kind of do look back to that upbringing with my mum running her business as kind of basically setting in stone what I was likely to end up doing. Uh, she, she, by the way, would have been absolutely appalled to be described as an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> as I remember uh, talking, you know, she was, she was always fascinated about my career and work. And I was I was telling her about Secret Escapes. And I think we'd, maybe it was our, gosh, our Series B or something. So we'd raised about 10 million in sterling, which, you know, my mum never took a, a penny in fundraising. She... She just built it all herself. And she was like, well, that's that's just amazing. So you've raised 10 million pounds. You know, how much profit are you making? I'm like, I'm not making any profit, mum. <laughs> deeply lost me um, at that point. And 
she was really worried. She thought I might go to jail for this. She's like, are you, are you allowed to do that? And it's like, yes, there's a whole industry based on kind of giving companies capital to grow before they're profitable. It's quite a big thing now. Uh, and she was just she was just flabbergasted. The fact that you could get somebody to invest in you before you'd built the sustainable business, uh, she thought was just, just mind-blowing. Wow, that's an amazing story. And then I think you studied uh, experimental psychology in Oxford. How was that? And by the way, I know the EP building in Oxford extremely well because I've got so many friends who went there. Oh, well, you knew it. It's not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, two years ago, three years ago, it came down. Yeah, I was I was a bit sad when I walked past. Uh, but yes, it was because uh, we used to share it uh, with the zoology crowd. And so whenever there was a fire alarm, people would kind of emerge out with their monkeys Every time somebody had like a, you know, try to attack the building um, for keeping animals inside, um, you guys probably also had to, you know, leave um, quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. At school, I was very into the the sciences. So my kind of, I ended my time at school studying maths, physics, chemistry, and biology. And I really enjoyed it, but I, again, kind of post-rationalizing where I ended up in my career, I found it like a little bit too pure. And I guess with the arrogance of an 18-year-old, it, it didn't really feel like what you were being exposed to was attempting to uncover a new understanding. It really was just, or it felt again to this 18-year-old, like just learning and understanding a bunch of work that other people had previously done to systemize how the world works or, uh, you know, what have you. Whereas I was really excited when I did my open days about how messy psychology and the social sciences uh, seemed because, you know, the experimentation was very impure. There was an awful lot of statistics in it. And it was like a much younger science. So even then, it felt like you could be part of the innovation, the kind of the independent thought. Uh, and that's what really, really sold me. And as it turns out, it was, you know, it was quite useful uh, in getting my first job out of university, but uh, I, I didn't in any way think about that when I was applying. Yeah, I think in, in hindsight, from today's perspective, the combination of um, psychology and then math and science and puts you into this perfect sweet spot position of growth, product, hacking, And then so you joined eBay right after university. How was that like? I often kind of think back to just how lucky I was to, you know, frankly stumble into that job. <laughs> uh, because I, for, for whatever reason, I, I wasn't drawn to the, the milk roundy professional services jobs, you know, very unwisely. And I think they're great ways to, to start a career. But kind of again, they, they felt like slightly solved problems to me. Mm. I was like, you know, this, this seems like everybody is is going off to do one of these things. I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to try and do something different. Uh, but it took me about a year to work out what different was. And uh, at a certain point, I got in contact with the graduate recruitment company because I was a graduate and I needed a job. And they put me forward for an eBay job. And I walked in in a suit and tie and they told me to take my suit and tie off in the interview. And it turned out they were looking, at, you know, as you say, for people that could join the marketing team who had a science background, but 
also had some statistics because that was a lot of what they were doing at the time. Uh, so the psychology degree was a very neat fit for that. And eBay, when I joined, which I think was about 2002, uh, it was like 100 people in the UK. It was still a very, very young business, still really, really influenced by the kind of startup early team culture. Mm-hmm. And also, it was just an absolutely incredible school for working in an online marketplace, which is what I have done for my entire career now. Because even at that stage, eBay was just so staggeringly large that it made sense, at least at that time, to really look at the leverage of any individual in the business. And so it was incredibly data, data data-led because that was the only way you could get a handle on this absolutely enormous beast that was the, the eBay marketplace in the early noughties. And so it was absolutely stuffed with the brightest minds that wanted to work in online at the time, kind of, you know, perhaps to the point of being a failing, like I think there were, you know, lots of jokes about the amount of PowerPoint and consultancy and stuff going around it. But as a, even as a junior at eBay, you just got exposed to absolutely everything. The strategy was discussed with the whole team to a kind of gigantic degree of depth. And so you really understood pretty well after your first couple of years, the top to bottom of the P&L of this online marketplace. Mm. And the training was amazing. And, you know, I see this at Secret Escapes now, but at a certain point, a smart young thing is able to say, you know, well, you know, I don't, I don't know about this other part of the business terribly well, but I know an awful lot about eBay or Secret Escapes and I've proved I've got a work ethic and can think well about the business. So how about you let me try that? And so uh, three years in, I was able to jump from the digital marketing team to the corporate strategy team, Mm -hmm. which was really exciting because you were on one day trying to work out the future and direction of the whole marketplace you know, globally. And the next day you were being parachuted in to try and solve a problem in payments or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was just an incredible privilege to be able to kind of do that kind of work and get my first sniff of M&A. And at this point I was like 24 or something. And I think I'm not alone in thinking incredibly fondly of those, those years at eBay and that team those people that were in that kind of very weird office down in Richmond, you know, they aren't quite the PayPal mafia, but they're, they've been a big influence, I think, on the, the London tech scene in the decade that followed. Uh, so it, it, it's fun seeing old faces as, you know, when you go to, well, when you went to networking events. Yeah, and I've interviewed so many people who've worked for eBay and all of them describe it extremely fondly the way you described it. I think the second point people point out, though, is, you know, next to the data-driven mentality, people always are quick to point out how incredibly American and in-your-face the culture was and how it took quite a long time to onboard to the culture. But then once you got it, you really enjoyed it and many people took these tools away and kind of build them into their companies um, as they founded companies. How did you feel about the culture? Well, I I think it was an incredibly American or West Coast American culture. 
and you know, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge America file, so mm-hmm. I I certainly didn't react poorly to it when I first encountered it. I thought it was I thought it was exciting. But my view of the eBay culture has gone full circle over the years, in that, you know, at the time when I was young and first there, I thought, you know, that well, this is amazing. This must be how every company is run everywhere. And then as I got a bit more worldly and a bit more cynical, I started to think, gosh, you know, some of this stuff might be bullshit. Like it seems as though uh, maybe maybe this is all a bit overstructured and aren't they making it a bit complicated? And, you know, like, well, why do they keep talking about their their values so much? Shouldn't we just do the, the work? And then I launched my own business and... I found myself and I, you know, I've had the the good luck to work with some of the people I was at eBay with at the time at Secret Escapes. And we occasionally find ourselves chuckling a bit as we come to the conclusion that we do need to formalize the values, or maybe we do need to reorganize the business, or maybe this complicated um, structure we're trying to present to the rest of the team is best represented in a two by two grid. And we're like, Gosh, I really owe those people I was cynical about a little bit of an apology. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I, I think eBay probably went a bit too far at certain points around the kind of the, the I don't know, over-ritualization of the culture and that kind of stuff. And, and I think maybe that held them back at points. But I, I've definitely moved from being a cynic about it to thinking it was an incredibly valuable piece of experience with an awful lot of things that I could just adopt a hundred percent in my own business and probably more that you're like, well, you know, 70, 80% of this is a really good idea. And maybe we don't need to go quite the whole hog. Mm. And you alluded to codifying the values um, at secret escapes before we talk about that. How did you then go from eBay to founding your own company? So I talked about how I'd had the opportunity to move within eBay to the strategy team. And uh, part of the job there was scanning for companies that eBay might want to bring into the eBay group, so M&A scanning. And I I came across uh, this subset of online marketplaces in the secondary ticketing space. So that's uh, ticket touting to to you and me. Um, And I came across a company called Seatwave and got to know them and then was offered uh, via a headhunter a job there. Um, And I I don't think the headhunter had kind of pieced together that I'd I'd, uh, come across them already. Again, that kind of underlying view that eventually I was going to launch my own thing was present in my mind. And at that point, Seatwave was maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 people seemed to be doing something very exciting. A lot of the stories they were telling sounded like uh, the stories from the very early days of eBay. And it felt like a real opportunity to kind of move to a different place in the ecosystem. But that said, they'd raised their money and they were hiring for all sorts of roles. So it wasn't the absolute terror of launching something from nothing. And so it felt like a very safe uh, way to move in the right direction. 
Uh, so I joined there as a product and marketing director on the sales side of the business. So my first time uh, properly managing technology teams. And I worked there for about three years, I think it was, until it felt like time to move on. Um, and I think the thing that moved me on was the observation uh, that I really didn't like gigs. And, you know, I, I loved the work there, but I once got a piece of advice that you can be happy in your job uh, if you're enjoying two out of three of the the work you're doing, the team you're doing it with, and the vision of the company. And, you know, I just, I wasn't super excited about the vision of secondary ticketing, which made it such that on any given day, you absolutely had to love the work and the interactions with the people you were having. And that was just an incredibly high bar. And I kind of came to the conclusion that probably the, the right thing to do was to make sure I was in love with the vision of the company and the sector it was in, because then you always have one and you only ever need one of the other two to be okay. And so that kind of moved me on and I, I bounced around for a little bit. And then immediately before meeting Alex, my co-founder at Secret Escapes, I was working at a holding company that owned a couple of online marketplaces in the deal space. So they owned a company called Kudos, which was effectively like a Secret Escapes, but for fashion. And also they had a similar business model, but in B2B for technology. So where did Dixon sell a plasma screen when it's not the new model anymore or something like that? And so I was running these deal businesses and I met Alex, who at the time was running a Skyscanner competitor. And we had a great conversation and he was trying to work out whether Groupon for luxury travel, uh, because at the time, Groupon was the most exciting business on the planet, uh, could work in the UK. I was effectively running Groupon for fashion at the time. And that was an amazing business on the consumer side, because you could start to see one of the things that I really love about Secret Escapes happening, where you're curating a group of customers who are really into a an area of e-commerce, in, in that case, fashion, and get really excited about uh, being talked to every day about what the best deals in that space are. And uh, I could see that side of the business working, but the supply acquisition on that marketplace was really, really tough because you were effectively trying to find stuff that hadn't sold well in the stores. And there was a question about uh, why it hadn't sold well in the stores. You know, was it unfashionable or unsuitable for some reason or other? So it, it seemed pretty clear we wouldn't be able to make uh, the supply side of that business work sustainably. Uh, but then we got to thinking about the equivalent for hotels. And it became clear that the supply side of that business was much more suited to the model. Because instead of selling stuff that can't sell in the shops or whatever it happens to be, in hotels, you're enabling them to manage their pricing and their price elasticity much more effectively. So, you know, in any given hotel, uh, and I, I'm, I'm worried I'm veering into the pitch here, so I'll be quick. But any given hotel uh, tends to sell 
I don't know, 70, 80% of its rooms at the price you see on booking.com or something. And those are people that know exactly what hotel they want to go to and what date they want to go to. And their concern is that if they lowered their price to sell 100% on booking.com, they'd miss out on potential profit. So what we do is we take that other 20 or 30% and we sell it to people that weren't planning the holiday that day. And that seemed like a good hypothesis you could test in the first six months of launching Secret Escapes. And if it were true, uh, the hotels would see they were selling those rooms but not cannibalizing their booking.com trade. And the customers would tell you that they were excited to have been sold a holiday in a place they weren't specifically planning. And coming back to the science, uh, the science was that seems like a pretty testable hypothesis. And the gut or the passion was, it felt like it was quite likely to be true as well. And that was enough, I think, for the, the two of us to get incredibly excited about launching Secret Escapes which we then did at the back end of 2010. And how did the first six months actually look compared to what you thought could happen? You know what? It's an incredibly boring story. It was right in the middle of our forecasts. <laughs> so it, it wasn't one of those ones where in the first couple of weeks, it was clear the business was 10 times more efficient than you could ever have hoped. And it was all going to be easy forever. And it wasn't a disaster, which meant that you had to start from scratch and pivot. It was, you know, right in the middle of the business plan. You know, the conversion rates on the site, the chance somebody buying when they visited were much lower than they are now. Uh, but, you know, no great surprise in that it makes sense, you know, yeah. there were five things on the site in a, you know, a uh, perfectly adequate but pretty clunky website. But it felt to us like the model that we had in mind for both sides of the business so that we would be able to give the supply side of the business, the hotels, extra trade if they gave us exciting discounts to drive that extra trade. That proved to be true. And the trade wasn't cannibalizing their current trade. And then the customers, uh, the members, the consumer side of the business were keen and excited to sign up to get the email every day. They kept on opening it. And when we put the right deal in front of them, they'd buy it. And then the satisfaction and NPS was good. And both in terms of the experience that brought them to buy and then when they went to the hotel. And so they stayed subscribed and would start eventually buying again. And so almost from not day one, but from year one up until 2020, It was uh, an execution and optimization play. So the model was there. It felt like we were doing something very exciting for both sides of the market. And fundamentally, to my, to my vision point, you were sending people on a nicer holiday than they would otherwise have planned. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, on any given day, you're just absolutely delighted to be making that marketplace grow. It feels like you're doing a, a good thing. And so we, we just kept on scaling both sides of the marketplace. And how quickly then did you have to raise more money? 
in the early years of Secret Escapes, we were curious about whether we could do what all the other cool kids on TechCrunch were doing <laughs> and uh, get the majority of our traffic for free, free referral. And, you know, we did our best there and we've got a pretty decent referral scheme. Uh, but we came to the conclusion pretty quickly that actually old school was going to be best for Secret Escapes, uh, which was paid marketing, uh, first digital and then TV, to grow the number of people that were getting the email every day and more lately uh, getting the app notifications every day. And you'd pay a little bit upfront, probably very similar to how you think about your business. Mm -hmm. And then the question was, how do you balance how many people you bring on to that list with how long does it take them to feel profitable? And so that kind of paid marketing cohort model became clear uh, that it was going to be, uh, and still is, the main growth engine of the marketplace. And so for that, it was clear in year one that we were going to raise money again. So we raised our Series A at the end of that year. And then I think 18 months later, our Series B. And when did you feel personally, like, feel this is succeeding? Did you hit, like, certain milestones? Or at what stage kind of, I guess, got the team much bigger? Yeah, so I, I think I'm fundamentally quite a critical guy. I could look back and describe points that I really should have looked at and said, you know what, I feel this is, this is a success. But I, I never really had that. You know, I've always been a bit of a strategic optimist and tactical pessimist. I'm very similar, by the way. Really, really similar to that point. Maybe it rings true then. So like, I, I think it, at the point at which I was totally confident, not just in the business's success, but that the job was done, I wonder, you know, honestly, how I'd feel about still working there. It would feel like a solved problem. Whereas on, on every day, I come into Secret Escapes, I'm really proud of the work we've done. And we've had certain milestones, of course. So we've, you know, we've gone beyond the UK. We've become the market leader in various territories. Uh, up until 2020, we'd been profitable for quite a few years. And you could see, see a good trajectory to scale into the future. But at any given point, it always felt like there are just so many areas where we could improve the business for any of our various stakeholders. So the people buying the holidays, the people supplying the holidays or the staff. And so I, you know, I, I've had this feedback. I think I'm quite bad at marking success. And so as the business has grown and we've had kind of corporate communication professionals join, I think both Alex and myself, we have to be reminded to celebrate a bit the success. Yeah, that's a really powerful point. I'm really similar. So I'm hugely proud of what we're doing. You know, recently we um, announced signing the real living wage pledge. We, we're becoming B Corp. We're turning a thousand people into shareholders. We're hiring another thousand people this year. But like, I'm always so focused on the next issue. So I really have to remind myself to focus on appreciation, not just expectation all day. And 
unlike Secret Escapes, I feel like Gusto in the early days really needed radical changes in every single component of our unit economics. So the level of belief and vision and long-term thinking you needed in the early days when we didn't have the budget or the team was was massive. Um, so I kind of feel like I conditioned myself to think really big and then back myself into team. And my learning was if you focus on these, you can move mountains, but you really have to move mountains. And it took me a long time to really feel this um, sense of pride uh, about the team and what they're achieving. And I think the biggest step for us was, was breaking even, which felt like, wow, this is officially like a business that's actually making money. And I always knew we would, similar to you, um, by looking at unit economics, but it just felt very different then. Yeah. Um, and I remember my mother was very excited when we broke even. She felt, <laughs> I can imagine. She felt confident that I was a real businessman at that point. Very different to my mom, who always just says, you know, do whatever you enjoy in life, Timo. You'll, you'll just have fun. That's good enough. Um, <laughs> and so how many people are in the business today? So there are about uh, 600 people working in the Secret Escapes group. So that's across... Uh, the business is branded as Secret Escapes and also some of the companies we've acquired over the years, which trade under different brands. And honestly, in 2019, uh, the team was a bit bigger than that. Um, but 2020 was uh, understandably quite a hard year for the travel industry. And, uh, you know, I, I think we did our best to re-engineer the business at its fundamentals uh, to make it more profitable and more lean. Um, but also, and you know, terribly sadly, we had to look at a business that was going to enter 2021 much smaller um, than it entered 2020. So we had to uh, let go um, quite a few members of the team over the course of 2020. Yeah, I can only imagine how difficult COVID must have been on your business, on the entire industry. I'm really sorry to hear. Um, but let me let me focus on you and Alex going from two people to 600 people and particularly what you learned about yourself and how you had to scale yourself, you know, from doing everything yourself, huge brain, you know, clearly extremely capable, scientific background, you know, amazing marketing toolbox, to all of a sudden, at some point, empowering other people and I guess leading in a very different way. And I'm sure that that wasn't a linear kind of shift. How did this feel to you? Well, it, it felt incredibly uncomfortable because, you know, when I started working at Secret Escapes, you've done it too. It's absolutely terrifying because, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to begin the founding stage of my career with a bunch of skills. And so I, you know, I, you know, I kind of, I had, had a, a vague sense of how to design a website and run the marketing and run a supply team. But uh, you really were solving 20 or 30 problems a day and problems would feel if not solved, resolved over the course of a day. And there was very little debate around which actions to take. There was just a huge list of pretty obviously necessary tasks and you pounded through them. And two or three years after that, you know, you take a breath and realize 
that you're you know actually pretty good at existing in that environment and you've built a team of you know 50 100 people around you who can absolutely move mountains and make things happen in days and then you look at your business plan uh which as you say kind of points to uh, you know eventually having a thousand people in the organization and you know i i'd like to pretend that i kind of looked at that and realized well quite obviously i'm going to have to learn how to delegate and step back um but i you know i i, I didn't do that what i did is worked as if we had a 50 person team for maybe a year longer than i really should ha- should have and realized we just weren't the executional business we needed to be for our weight class and then at that point realized that even though i felt qualified for the job i've been doing it was now a very very different job and you know that's the scale up phase and that's building a team that can execute but execute all the way through the organization where you know you don't need founder fairy dust sprinkled on a project to make it happen come up with their own list of things that must be done but also share them across the business and join in productive discussions when you get good about it about what the one or two things you need to be truly excellent at to move the business in the direction it needs to move in have to be and get the whole team supporting those either directly because they're working on those projects or indirectly by freeing up resource so those projects can be worked on. And if you had to name those one to two things um, to be excellent in, what would you say? So for Secret Escapes, Secret Escapes is a marketplace. And if you have supply and demand scaling appropriately with each other, then most everything else is going to fall into place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there have been times You make where it sound we, easy. <laughs> well, you know, the, kind of, the, the thing about working in marketplaces is the, the the analytical question on any given, you know, day, week, month, or year is, do we have a supply problem or do we have a demand problem? <laughs> um, and, you know, I hope at times we're a little bit more foresighted than that, but it's generally not much more complicated than that. <laughs> You know, so I, I believe over the years, we've built an absolutely market-leading direct and brand response marketing team. And having to innovate an awful lot because there weren't other companies doing this well that we were aware of, uh, work out how you run a team which appropriately balances kind of direct sales, business development and account management in a hotel deals business. So how do we make sure we have the absolute best sales team uh, for the business we're trying to build? And generally speaking, those have been the areas of focus. And because we're an online marketplace, we had to build an awful lot of bespoke technology to allow us to analyze and optimize the performance of that marketplace and, you know, uh, a, a kind of online platform that allows the trade to happen. So as I say, for a kind of very lengthy portion of my career, it sounds incredibly simple, but focusing on supply, demand and optimizing the tech platform 
has been top of my to-do list for about 10 years now. Well, and did you on this journey work with mentors or people you emulated or a coach? Uh, how did you kind of, you know, manage the business, work 100 hours, but at the same time, carve out the time to really get better all the time uh, as a leader? Yeah, so I think in terms of getting better at my job, I think there's been two important kind of phases and areas of support I've found. So at that point where we were moving from startup to scale up was also, so what would that have been about, that 2013, 2014, uh, was also the point where I met my coach who is uh, still my coach today. And I just have all the time in the world for coaching, especially when you have the kind of jobs like we do, where, you know, to put it bluntly, you don't have a boss. So a coach fills a bunch of the kind of holding the mirror up that a great manager does. Mm. But I think also has been incredibly important as I've been trying to understand uh, how to manage that balance that I kind of referred to a bit earlier between that daily execution and focusing on optimization and pulling back to get my head up and work out what we need to do on a slightly longer timescale. Um, so be it the strategy or the people strategy or that kind of stuff. And one of the most um, powerful exercises I always love doing is this whole with a coach to step out of the noise and to think about the speed of change you anticipate for the next, I don't know, 12, 18 months, and then to work back to think about the impact it has on you, what energizes you, what you want to solve for, what do you delegate to other people, what's most critical, what's the impact on people and culture, and, and just kind of stepping out of the noise and being very intentional and making the unconscious conscious. Um, so I have super positive experiences working with coaches too. And, you know, it sounds like we heard a bunch of the same things because the the other thing that I think has been really instrumental for me in the last couple of years has been really getting to the bottom of how I can keep my energy levels where they need to be. And that's across the, the full spectrum. So kind of looking at the things I do at work and the things that, you know, when I look at my calendar in the morning, really, really excite me and I can't wait for that meeting and the stuff which occasionally I think is going to be a bit tough. And then starting to get a little bit more Californian about the whole thing and working out when I'm looking down the barrel of a tough day, uh, what I need to do that day or either need to have done in the week prior in order to make sure my energy levels are where they need to be for the tough decisions. And, you know, I'm not a natural athlete, uh, but, you know, I, I really have started to view like exercise and diet and meditation as just as important as preparing the agenda for the meeting in order to make sure I'm at my best for this stuff. And I think For me, there's a couple of things going on there. One is in this phase of my work life, I've also become a father, so I am just more exhausted. But I also think that for me personally, some of the really important decisions that I have to make, so, you know, 
what is our people's strategy going to be or which tech project, which is going to take six months to come to fruition, are we going to push for? They don't have that same dopamine loop as the kind of first couple of years, let's solve 20 projects in a day times. It's literally, I think it's the best possible term, right? It's this addiction to dopamine. You want to open your email. You want to forward the email to five people. You want to get into the detail. It's it's a really hard cycle to break. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think if you're, if you're going for the dopamine hit in a scale-up, that probably pushes you towards micromanagement where you don't need to be. So my personal view is... You don't necessarily need that dopamine hit, but if you're low energy, you probably do. So how can you make sure your batteries are full? I think what, what's really starting to dawn upon me is, is that philosophy of failing fast is maybe appropriate for like the early days um, when you have no money. But at scale-up stage, it feels like succeed slowly. And you almost have to condition your mindset to work in a very different way. And you need your diary to support that shift. And you got to free up time to think much more deeply because ultimately you and I are taking very few decisions today because we have processes and other people who are amazing who take decisions on a daily basis. But the few decisions we take obviously have a huge impact on the organization then. But it's a very like massive shift in mindset, I find. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And you know, also decisions are great, but 2020s also reminded us about emergencies. Mm. And you know, one of the other things I've realized is you need to be ready for the emergency. You need to be at an appropriate level of full on your batteries. So, Tom, on behalf of the, the audience, I got to tell you how incredibly successful you are. And I know you're an incredibly humble guy who might not see it the same way at times. But what I want to ask you is, is often the problem of success seems to be how easy it is to conflate luck and skill. If you had to kind of describe what's actually made you successful, what allowed you to scale to 600 people, raise so much money, be successful objectively, what is the difference between luck and skill and what's the special skill you have? I think my superpower might well be cowardice. I don't think I could have gone through the, the startup phase that you went through, Augusto. You know, I maybe it is that dopamine thing, but I really, really need evidence points for decisions and I need them to come relatively quickly. There are the right people to run all sorts of different businesses. And, you know, I think I'm just a bit too much of a kind of, of a fraidy cat to work in a business where you don't have a pretty good idea of whether the business is going to run according to the business plan you were setting for it in the first six months and then optimize after that. So I think there are some businesses I'd be absolutely terrible at running, but kind of knowing what I need as regards that kind of information loop, learning loop, feedback loop, to feel happy working in a business has led me to businesses like Secret Escapes, where the fundamental 
hypothesis that if you can put great supply in front of the right group of customers, the rest is optimization and execution, is the kind of business where my mindset, and I'd like to believe the the kind of teams that I have a hand in building does well. So that cowardice, that need for regular scientific feedback, I think set me up quite well for Secret Escapes. And then the thing that I'm increasingly aware of as I grow older is just the gigantic privilege I had in the early years of my career of feeling confident to move jobs, working hard and supporting the jobs I was doing. But until I found a job that was a really good match for the kind of work that I wanted to do, and I'm just so aware that the the safety net I had from the kind of success my my parents had had made that feel much more risk-free than many other people starting out on the same career. And so the the cowardice and need for science bit is something to do with me. And then the safety net is something that I think society and people in the industry need to get better at removing the need for. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I also really think you are an incredibly intelligent person. And as the complexity of your job increases, the predictive utility of high IQ increases, if that makes sense. And, you you know, you, you can leverage your IQ in a much uh, more productive way, I guess. And how do you how do you kind of figure out what's the signal, what's the noise? So one of the biggest challenges I'm facing is there's so much information, unlimited information, you know, at my fingertip. There are teams available to dig deeper if you have any question. So what's what? How have you kind of learned to really look for the signal uh, and avoid all the distraction, all the noise? My team find me uh, very annoying about this, <laughs> but. I think the the biggest kind of hack I have in this is just being absolutely ruthless about metric prioritization, uh, which isn't the most sexy piece of advice by any means. But, you know, I said earlier that at any given day, we either have a demand problem or a supply problem. You know, if you hold that to be true and then you split those two funnels down, into the five or so metrics that lead from the top of demand to the bottom and the top of supply to the bottom, you don't have to look at that many numbers to work out where you've got a problem. And then you can let the analysis explosion happen and dive into the data. But at least you're only diving in in kind of one of the 10 metrics that you could. So if you have a view of what the business needs to achieve in any given year. And again, the kind of business I like to run, you've got a kind of clear equation on how the business achieves that success. You can focus in on a metric and then make the decision about like, is the best way to turn that focus into insight? You know, is it qual or quant? Do we need to do statistics here or do we need to talk to a customer? But kind of keeping the prioritization that strict can be can be incredibly challenging because when something's complicated, the desire to try and learn everything that could be influencing it is there. And there are some times when you have to do that. 
But more often than not, when I look back, when kind of searches for insight go a bit out of control, it's because that prioritization has been allowed to drop. It's, it's a really powerful point. Half the time, I feel like we're discussing what's what's the symptom, what's the root cause. And if you go into analysis too soon, you, you can waste a lot of time. Um, it's really great counsel. Thank you. And um, what have you learned about building high-performing teams and also, I guess, the board to some extent? On high-performing teams, the single most important thing I've learned is to fire fast. And what I mean by that, and I, you know, I don't mean for it to sound cruel, is the biggest mistakes I've made in Secret Escapes and other areas of my career have been finding some excuse to not take a low performer who isn't helping the team and isn't happy themselves out of the business when it becomes clear that it isn't a coaching issue that can be solved. And, you know, a bit of that comes down to board relations to your, to your second question. You know, generally the pattern for me has been, you know, this person isn't right for the role. They're not making themselves or us happy. But if we replace them now, we're going to be behind target for the next couple of quarters. And that short-sighted mistake is, you know, a mistake I try and make less and less. I wouldn't say I, I never make it anymore. But having good, open relationships with your board and your investors is one way to do that. But also just asking yourself the question of, you know, this is going to be a tricky thing, which might in the short term hold our goals back. But is there any chance whatsoever that is going to be easier if we leave this for a year? And the answer is always an obvious no. And, I, you know, I think not to try and reduce teams to a soundbite, but I think that's the one that I try and focus on the most. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And you've also been a non-executive director in another company for some time. What have you learned about, I guess, yourself and, and you know, getting that new vantage point? I absolutely love it. One of the features of the kind of corporate board side of the business is quite often the first time you encounter a board level problem like a you know a fundraising discussion or a, a potential acquisition for the business or something like that it's the first time you've encountered it ever in your entire career so being uh, on another company's board uh, doubles my opportunity to experience board level decisions which i think has been incredibly helpful for both my executive and my non-executive businesses. And also I just find it fascinating because an awful lot of my strategic thinking is around online travel. And I really, really just relish the opportunity to challenge myself to be a bit more abstract in that strategic thinking by thinking about, you know, in this case it was um, pensions, but thinking about an entirely different business and being reminded how, when you kind of abstract to an appropriate level, how similar most of the debates are. 
how does life in, I don't know, 20, 30 years look like? What, what's kind of the dream? Do you want to be productive until you're 85? Do you want to be living on an island, which you surely can? Like, what's the, what would be fun? Oh, well, you know, asking this question in January 2021, I think being able to leave the house would be excellent. <laughs> That's a fair point, yeah. I should imagine that I won't be as conscious of the imperfect compromises between my work life and my family life at that point. Hopefully, I will have managed both, that I feel I can really well serve both in any given week. At the moment, kind of, you know, if I think of my role as a CEO, a husband and a father, I kind of, I, I get the sense that in any given week, I'm probably not 100% on any of them. And, you know, I think that's probably the right thing for all three of those. Uh, but, you know, I hope to resolve that over the next 20 or 30 years. And I suspect that I will still be working pretty hard in some form because fundamentally, I've never encountered the complex intellectual and interpersonal challenge that work life brings anywhere else in life. And, you know, I think I need that. I think some months uh, the temptation to kind of sit very still and read a book is pretty strong, but I think that would last about a month. And then, uh, you know, I'd be keen to find complicated problems to solve again. <laughs> <laughs> 